28 people die to make this podcast about bringing ahead of Alfredo Garcia today on Cinema Oblivia. Welcome to Cinema Oblivia, your podcast for movies that are out of date, out of fashion, unremembered, disregarded, or otherwise unloved. I'm your host, James Eldred, and I'm very happy today for a special guest. Who's with me today? Uh, my name is Alex Navarro, and I'm here to talk about uh, a movie I love dearly, maybe even in spite of itself. Thank you. Yes, uh, me too. Alex, again, even though I said it off the, off the recording, thank you again so much for being here. I super appreciate it. I'm glad to be here. This is a awkward situation where I imagine most people listening to this episode will know you more than me, but for the few that don't, <laughs> could you tell people really quick about yourself? Happily. Uh, I currently work for a site called Giant Bomb. It is uh, allegedly a website about video games. Uh, <laughs> I've worked in the video game industry in various capacities, mostly in media, for the last, oh, let's say 16, 17 years, somewhere around there. We'll go with that. Oh, sounds good. Yeah. And you also, for uh, a while, worked for a movie website. Yes, I ran a site called Screened.com. It was part of the Whiskey Media family of websites. Uh, It was one of the ones that did not go with Giant Bomb to CBS. Uh, But yeah, no, I worked on that for a couple of years. Yes, pour one out for Screened. Great website. But yeah, today we are talking about Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia, the Sam Peckinpah film from 1974 that is one of the most just... I don't know, just not pleasant, but still great films I watch on a semi-regular basis because I kind of hate myself. Alex, when I, I, I sent you a Twitter link, because I, I asked you to be on the show at first because I noticed that you bought Black Narcissist, and I love that yes. movie, and I want to talk about that. But you're like, Black Narcissist, pff, nah, Alfredo Garcia. <laughs> yeah, it's like, like first, first of all, Black Narcissist, fine film, delightful. I just, it's yep. not a movie that I have like really strong opinions about other than, boy, Technicolor's neat. Um, but (laughs) that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But so in the case of Alfredo Garcia, it it is a movie that I, I love, as I said, uh, it is a nightmare, but (laughs) it is a nightmare that hit me at the right time in my life, which is to say probably around the time when I was in my late teens and I was definitely into very angsty cinema. Um, and you know, it's, it's stuck with me over the years, with the exception of maybe The Wild Bunch, I think more so than any other Peck and Fa film, just because it's just, I have, I have a deep love of like exploitation cinema, just like really trashy stuff, really, you know, yeah, kind too. of just off, to, off the gutter kind of cinema. And Alfredo Garcia, I think, has a lot of the hallmarks of that, but it's, you know, it's a studio picture. It's made by a, a fairly, at that time, well-regarded director. And, you know, it has like, real acting and real, you know, uh, like kind of real production values applied to it. And it's, you know, I, I think it, it will get into talking about this more, but it is also in a lot of ways, I think a self portrait of the director who is a terrific, was a terrific filmmaker and an absolutely miserable human being. 
Yeah, he's not a nice person. He doesn't, he doesn't make nice films. So I, I, I should say up front uh, that when we talk about Sam Peckinpah and Sam Peckinpah films, topics like misogyny, sexism, and uh, movies that deal with sexual assault and other very unpleasant things will probably come up. So if that's the kind of thing that might bother you, you might want to check this one out and you know come back for another episode when I talk about Smoking the Bandit. Yes. Yes happier film but yeah i discovered you know i'm a huge sam peckinpah fan it's one of the few things i have in common with my father and i remember even as a kid we had that one of those leonard leonard malton books you know Mm -hmm. like uh because yeah my dad's a big movie geek too and i remember i would just when i was bored before the internet you had to like do stuff and i would just sit at home and read that book like a book (laughs) and just read all the reviews And I would like to go through and try to find the lowest star reviews just because it was funny. And Leonard Moulton, I remember, gave this movie a bomb. And that always stuck with me. And also the title stuck with me as, yeah. as a, you know, that's a hell of a title. And I, at the time, I didn't know who Sam Peckinpah was. I didn't connect the pieces, connect the dots as to, like, who this was and all he made this movie until I was probably in college because I wrote my senior thesis on The Wild Bunch. And... But at that time, Alfredo Garcia was kind of a hard film to find. It didn't really get easier to find until the early 2000s when it finally got a DVD release. And that's when I first saw it. Yeah, I think I think that's pretty close to when I saw it for the first time, too. Like, I knew what the movie was. <laughs> Specifically, so I, the first time I ever heard the name of the movie, mm-hmm. it was in the movie Fletch, of yes. all fucking things. I'm yeah. allowed to cuss, right? Oh, yeah, go nuts. Absolutely. All right. So, yes, in the movie Fletch, <laughs> there is a totally tossed off reference where he is talking to a nurse or something and she's asking him what he needs. And he's like, I don't know, uh, bring me this, that, and uh, bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia also. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I did, I, it's like, when I was way too young because I, I saw that movie probably when I was like, I don't know, nine or 10, 11, somewhere around there. And mm-hmm. the way I absorbed a lot of the references in those movies was kind of just put them in the filing cabinet and figure out what they were later. Kind of like The Simpsons. Yeah, exactly. Like a lot of yeah. the entertainment I consumed at that age was just lousy with that stuff. And yeah. years and years later, you know, I started building up a DVD collection. And I think I saw Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. I want to say it was probably like 2000, 2001, somewhere around there. I finally saw a copy of it. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to like, I want to check this out. Mm-hmm. And finally sat down and watched it. And I think at that point, the only Peck and Paw movie I had seen the whole way through was The Wild Bunch. I'd probably yeah. seen like bits and pieces of like Cable Hogue or, you know, a couple of mm-hmm. other things here and there, but I never, never sat down to watch one. So this is like the second of his movies I'd ever seen. And I remember just being gobsmacked by just the, just the, just the trashy, beautiful yeah. energy of this thing. Yeah. And I remember when it came out, cause when it came out, I was working for a terrible DVD, online DVD retailer with Sally Mae Nameless and they were letting me do reviews, and I and uh, I I wanted to quit that job because I hated it. But I saw that this movie was coming out, and I was like, "Well, before I quit, I want to review this movie." So, because I'll, I'll get it for free. So I held on to the job like an extra month and a half just to get this movie. <laughs> and nice. Like the last, I reviewed the movie, and then I quit. And then, and then, then when I quit, they're like, "You know, don't take two weeks. We'll just pay you to leave." So it worked out for the best. Hey. I think. Yeah, yeah, works out for everyone. Yeah, everybody wins except them because they're no longer in business. But anyway, but yeah, it's a crazy movie. It's also you know you you bring up the Fletch reference. I think the ti- for a long time the title of this movie was a joke, right? Because I I made a whole list. So there's there's that joke in Fletch. There's a joke in Futurama. There's a joke in Gilmore Girls of all places. 
and there's a a short animated film called Bring Me the Head of Charlie Brown. <laughs> oh God, <laughs> which is like not an official Charlie Brown film. Obviously, it's a student film. That's basically a, a hyper violent Charlie Brown film. It's a spoof of Sam Peckinpah. Why not? And then there's Bring Me the Head of Dobie Gillis, which I don't even know what that is. Nope. Bring me the head. Of, bring me the head of Mavis Davis, which is a British movie with one of the people from Abfab. Bring me the head of the Machine Gun Woman, Japanese movie, I think. Then there's a quest in Cyberpunk 2077. Bring me the head of Gustavo Orta. Yeah, that that bad tracks. Yep. That's the level of humor. There's a Hawkwind album <laughs> called Bring Me. <laughs> oh, Hawkwind. I, 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 I fucking love Hawkwind. Get I got nothing me- against Hawkwind. I'm not dissing Hawkwind. It's just they are they are a very funny band to me. I, I'm way into space rock right now. So like any music that you can represent on the side of a van, I'm all about. Totally. Yeah, so they have an album called Bring Me the Head of Yuri Gagarin. That's the first man in space. Yes. And there's also an album called Bring Me the Rest of Alfredo Garcia. So Okay. Yeah, you know, other half. So yeah, it's one it's, of those titles that's just like eminently quotable. Like you yeah, know, you hear it for the a, first time and it's stuck there. Yeah, it's totally yeah. So like, you know, before we get into who the who's and what's of it, like really quick, what it's about, if you can't tell, uh, <laughs> somebody wants the head of Alfredo Garcia, and the there's a, a, a we'll get into details a bit, but it's about it's basically kind of like a just a fucked up road movie, <laughs> and a very fucked up road movie about a guy who who wants the money for the... He finds out about this hit, that somebody wants this guy dead, but then he finds out this guy's already dead. So he wants to go to his grave and get the head and return it for the money. And everything that could possibly go sour or sideways or up shit creek does, and it just becomes a nightmare for everyone involved. I think the person person who gets off the best in this movie is Alfredo Garcia. Yeah, no, I mean he's he's in and out, and he he dies by all accounts fairly quick and painless death. So yeah. you know he just he can just sit back and just let the rest of this bad shit happen to everyone. Yeah, so yes, because this movie was made by the the master of bad shit, uh, mm-hmm. Sam Peckinpah, and I don't know. I think I don't know if people like younger than us have any like reverence or even really know much about who he is but he was such an important filmmaker in the 60s yes you know he started in tv his first big tv work was a tv show called the westerner with brian keith who was a pretty big actor in the 60s he's in parent trap you know not like peckinpah films and yes uh from there he went on to film he made a movie with brian keith called the deadly companions brian keith and maureen o'hara which that's his first movie it's not that good it's it's Kind of a standard western, although it's it's kind of it's kind of messed up because the Brian Keith and Marion O'Hara fall in love after he accidentally murders her child. That's some so David Cage writing right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. And then after that, he made uh, Ride the High Country, which is an amazing movie. Awesome. I highly recommend Ride the High Country. That's one of my favorite, probably Peck and Paw films. It's, it's it's much more of a classical western still. So this is a before you know wild bunch and his his latest stuff but it's an interesting film because the first half is very normal western style and then it gets to the second this is 1962 then the second half the setting changes and warren oates and lq jones show up and from that point on things get much much darker so it's almost it's almost a prototype for the wild bunch in a lot of ways it has similar themes about brotherhood and friendship and 
being on two sides of the law when you're still friends. It was it's a fascinating film, and I I really recommend it. It has a uh, Randolph Scott in it. It's a great movie. I think the thing. I think the thing you can kind of tell even in the earliest like Westerns that Peckinpah worked on is that he always kind of wanted to break out of that mold of just like the adventure Western, mm-hmm. like whenever he could, if he could find a way to kind of darken the tone and turn it into something a little bit more gritty and miserable, he would find a way to do it. <laughs> yes. And because he was kind of a gritty and miserable person, he Early on in his, I thought there's, there's a story on Wikipedia. I don't know if it's true that he was working as a stagehand on the Liberace show when he got fired because he wouldn't wear a tie. Like, I can I would love. You gotta to get imagine, your start somewhere. Yeah, I mean, but just imagine like Sam Peckinpah and Liberace. That's a, a fantastic combination. But the film he made after Ride the High Country was a major Dundee with uh, Charlton Heston, and I haven't seen that because I, I live in Japan and it's kind of hard to get the good version of that movie because that movie was edited by the studio against Peckinpah's wishes, which was a common problem he had. Yeah. And that was that was a pretty big movie, but he was such an asshole on it. And he like he he got into a violent fight with Charlton Heston and you know would show up drunk and all this shit that he he really didn't work in film for a few years after that because he just established himself of just being a complete prick. Yeah. And I, yeah, like that's that is a recurring theme throughout his career is that mm-hmm. you know he is if nothing, like yes, he's a miserable person to work with, and you know it, you can chalk some of this up to the fact I, I'm not permitting it or saying it's permissible mm-hmm. in any way, but like you can chalk some of this up to the fact that like the the '60s and '70s, you know, there was definitely I think a much more permissive attitude where if you were good at your job if you were a director like they would studios would give you a lot of weird leeway like he wasn't the only one that got away with a lot of really heinous shit on the set oh like you know, hitchcock. The, yeah. hitchcock you know like the michael Samino stories you know working <laughs> on uh you know heaven's gate and all that <laughs> stuff like it's it was a wild fucking time and you know peck and pot i think is maybe like the ultimate example of that of a guy who really skated by on his talent which allowed him to abuse his power and those around him in a way that was, you know, disgusting. Yeah. And, you know, he, he, he was known for being very verbally abusive on the set. And I have, I didn't find any stories of actual physical abuse or anything more heinous, but I wouldn't be surprised. And yeah, I mean, a lot of it was just a lot of yelling and also just completely detaching himself from the sets at various points, you know, being like, Like, you know, he'd show up to set one day and be like, all right, do things this way, then disappear for hours, come back and be like, yep, you did it all wrong. Do it again. That kind of stuff. And movies would go over budget because of that and because people were too afraid to disagree with him because he fired anyone he didn't like. So almost every movie you read, the movie took too long to make and it went over budget. So after making Major Dundee for a few years, he, he was kind of not on the outs with Hollywood, went back to TV, did some good TV work, and then went back to Warner Brothers and made The Wild Bunch, which you can't overstate, like, A, how good that movie is. And it's the B, best Western it, ever made. I, I still I still stand by that. I Yeah, but my favorite Westerns are that and High Noon. And yeah. they're really different films, but they're almost impossible to compare. But yeah, The Wild Bunch came out in 1968. That was right around the time when you started to get... Uh, 1969, 1969. Yeah. And that was the beginning of the modern rating system really the the late 60s, so you could get away with a lot more stuff in your westerns. And that was the first western to be, to be like, yo, this sits violent. People died. 
and not yeah. just the bad guys. And so if you haven't, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen the wild bunch, watch the wild bunch. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's probably your dad's favorite movie and he's right. <laughs> yeah. It's one of the few where I think the dads are absolutely correct. Yes. And it, fantastic cast. It has uh Ernest Borgnine, uh, William Holden, Robert Ryan, Ben Johnson, LQ Jones, who's a character actor I love, who's still alive. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was a while ago, my boyfriend and I were watching movies, and we, in the course of two days, we watched three movies not knowing that LQ Jones wasn't all three of them. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm just looking we this up. The, yeah, dude, he is still alive. That's yeah, wild. We saw The Wild Bunch, and then the next day, we, we watched uh, Lone Wolf McCade. <laughs> <laughs> sure. And... <laughs> And then we watched The Brotherhood of Satan. And, okay. Yeah, uh, we watch weird movies. I, my my boyfriend is very patient. And uh, but yeah, he's in he's in uh like he just shows up. He's in White Line Fever, which is a movie I've talked about. I think on half the episodes of this podcast, but I love it so much. He's in a lot of Sam Peckinpah films. He's in Casino. Uh, his last movie was Prairie Home Companion. I believe he is retired. He is 93 years old. You know, yeah. So let let the man rest. You let the man rest. Yes, yes. And but this is just a fantastic movie. Just utterly fantastic. And Sam was able to follow that up with a lot of films in a very short period of time that are all kind of different. You know, yeah. there's yeah. So uh, what ones have you seen aside from but between Wild Bunch and Alfredo Garcia, which movies have you seen? Uh, so I have definitely seen Cable Hogue in its entirety. It, t- it took me a while, but I got there. I've seen Straw Dogs. Yeah, and I, so I've never seen Junior Bonner, and I've never yeah. I, I've, I've seen The Getaway, but I don't remember a lot about it. And I'm kind of in the same boat with Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. I okay. know I've seen it, but it's been so long that I don't remember yeah. a lot about it. Yeah, so the movies he made after The Wild Bunch, like he followed it up in a year with The Ballad of Cable Hogue, which is a Western, but it's not very violent. I think only three people die and only two of them, only two are murdered. So, hey, and it's kind of a comedy. It's kind of a love story. It's a weird movie. It's very, uh, it's lovely in a way that I, it, like, I would never, almost never use that word to describe mm-hmm. a Peckinpah movie because it's just not really his aesthetic. But there is just kind of like a weird loving quality to that movie that I kind of, I kind of appreciate. It's very maudlin and kind of sappy. And yeah. It's like the other side of the coin of movies about the death of the Old West. Like, The Wild Bunch is about the violent death, and The Cable Hogue is just kind of like the quiet, sad, slow, yeah. like, times are changing. And then he made Straw Dogs, which I love that movie, but A, I will never watch it again, and B, I don't even feel comfortable really talking about it. <laughs> Yeah, like it's again, it's another one of those movies that I think you could really only make in the early 70s. You know, like mm-hmm. it is it is very much of its time and it is certain it like they remade it like a Ugh, decade or something ago. They did that. Yeah. Yeah. And I've seen the remake and it's not good, but it's not even not good in a way that's like interesting. It's like they just kind of sucked all the energy out of the original. And yeah. the original is really only memorable for its energy, which is uh, manic. It's it's memorable for the last act and a very troubling uh, sexual assault scene. Yeah, uh, that is just that another theme of Peckinpah's films is wild misogyny. Like, yes, he, if you're a woman in a Peckinpah film, you're gonna be a prostitute or a victim or both. Nothing good is much. going to happen to you. I can tell you that much. His least misogynist film 
is probably bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia. And the only woman in character in that that really speaks is a prostitute. Yeah. Still. Like, the getaway has Steve McQueen slaps Ali McGraw and Nat, and there's Sally Struthers is A, fantastic in that movie, and B, just plays the worst, most vapid airhead woman in the world. Her character is what every shithead twenty single 20-year-old thinks of women. Like, yep. just absolutely just horrible. It's still a great film. The Getaway is an amazing movie, and I can't hate anything with Steve, if I get to look at Steve McQueen for 90 minutes, man. I'm down. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And then after The Getaway, and Star Dogs and The Getaway were pretty big. Junior Bond is kind of a quiet film about a rodeo. And that has um, Steve McQueen and Joe Don Baker. Uh, that's the only one I have. Love me seen. some Joe Don. I love Joe Don Baker. We talked about him on this podcast for the film Joysticks. Oh, did you do Joysticks? Oh, good lord! <laughs> it's, it's not up yet, but I, I did do Joysticks, and that's a that's a that's a not a movie. That's uh, garbage. <laughs> it's garbage. Yeah, Graydon Clark also did Black Shampoo, which I watched last night. Much better film. Anyway, much better. Yeah, much better. And then. There's um, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, which is now considered a classic. But when it came out, it bombed. And it was very controversial because the studio took it away from him. They re-edited it. Uh, I've never seen the studio version. I'm kind of interested to see how much they would have changed because it's a great movie. It has um, James Coburn as Pat Garrett, Chris Christopherson's Billy the Kid, Bob Dylan is there. It's 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 a nutso cast, and yeah. I, I I I'm pretty sure the only version I've seen is the one that is currently in circulation, yeah. and that version is very very good. It's very good. Slim Pickens is great in that, but Slim Pickens is great in everything. And again, it has LQ Jones because ev- almost every Sam Peckinpah yeah. film has LQ Jones. And then that bombed. He got super pissed off at studio system for editing his movies, changing them, and then he's like, screw it. I'm out. He goes to Mexico. He's like, I'm only going to make movies in Mexico now. And that's when he wants to make this. Yeah. And joining him for that ride is his, he had a kind of a, like he was an abusive prick, but if you got along with him, it seemed to be a pretty good ride because a lot of people stick with him. So yeah, yeah. there's two guys. This, this movie was written by Sam Peck and Paul and two of the people, the story was thought up by a guy named Frank Kowalski he worked with Sam on a lot of movies as a assistant director, dialogue supervisor. He wasn't really a, sc- a screenwriter. He only wrote one of the movie, a movie called A Man Called Sledge. But this was his idea. He, when they were making Cable Hogue, he said, I got an idea for a movie. There's a hit on a guy, but he's already dead. And it's called Bring Me the Head of That Guy. <laughs> right. And Sam's like, that's an awesome idea for a movie. He He starts to work on it. He starts working on it. He can't get it together. And then he... He has Gordon T. Dawson work on it with him. Gordon T. Dawson was a wardrobe guy. <laughs> That's yes. He was a wardrobe guy who had also uh, worked his way into some producer credits, I think, yes. on uh, a couple of his movies. Yeah, associate producer, line producer, stuff like that. And so this is he he's an, he he's he's an uncredited writer on Cable Hogue. This is his first movie writing credit. The majority of the film is him, Peck and Paw and improvis- improvisation. That's the, the most of the story. And after this, he kind of didn't do much. Then went to TV and yeah. produced and wrote Walker, Texas Ranger. A show that I believe he described as uh, fairly right wing. So it was very easy to write. Yeah, easy to write. And it, he, he, 
there's a commentary. There's a few different Blu-rays of this movie. If you can find the out-of-print Twilight Time release, which is kind of hard to find because Twilight Time was a terrible studio who would put stuff out in very small runs that no longer exist. And but there's a commentary track with him only on that release, and it's a fantastic commentary track about and it going into detail about him and the actually Nightmare. they just put that out. That commentary is on the uh, the Kino Lorber release. They just oh, did. I, I, oh. I know because I own it, and I, oh, awesome. I was listening to that before we did this. Oh, cool, cool, cool. It so is a really good up. commentary. Yeah, it's a fantastic commentary track, and he sounds like an interesting guy. So, but yeah, and so they came with them. Same composer, Jerry Fielding, who does really weird scores. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I think uh, he did the score for the Bad News Bears. So hey, and but the real the real people who stick with him a lot are the people in his cast. And this movie has a fantastic cast anchored with a starring role, a rare starring role of Warren Oates. Yes, the an man. actor that I I have a great deal of love for, despite actually only ever having seen him in I'm going to say maybe like eight or nine movies total, but like I am always drawn to him whenever I see him in something. Yeah, I'm always down for Warren Oates. Uh, he was a character actor for most of his career. He's from Kentucky. He grew up during the Depression. He was a high school dropout and all those things. You look at his face and you're like, yeah, that checks out. Yeah. And he first worked with Peck and Parr, like I said, on Ride the High Country, and he plays a very dark character in that film. Like his appearance, I like I've, I already said, Ride the High Country feels like a changing of the guard in Westerns. And yeah. when he shows up and L.Q. Jones show up, that movie takes a dark turn. And Warren Oates was good at playing a lunatic on a horse. Totally. Really. He didn't like playing lunatics on horses. He he said he would he wanted to do other stuff. And he, he, he felt that if you're in a Western, you have to be larger than life. And that's not him. That's That was his viewpoint. But he's in so many westerns. He's in this. He was in like the other Peck and Paul movies. He's in Hired Hand by uh, by Peter Fonda, a lot of other ones. And he had a few starring roles like in the mid seventies. In one year, he was a starring role in three movies. He was in this, a movie called The White Dawn about three whalers in the Arctic. Okay, with, with Louis Gossett Jr. and a cast of Inuits, and then he's also in Cockfighter. Oh, Cockfighter, yes. By Monty Hellman. Have you seen Cockfighter? I, I think I have. It's oh. another one of those movies that I, I saw many years ago when I was just kind of tearing through a lot of weird stuff, and mm-hmm. I, yes, but I, I do remember Cockfighter. Uh, it's, Cockfighter is a very interesting movie that you no one should see because the cockfights are real. Yeah. I didn't know that when I watched it and it was just, it was very hard to watch and it just seems entirely unnecessary to make, to make that movie that way. There's a lot of, a lot of, I went through a big spat of like movies with unfortunate chicken violence, like the beginning of the beginning of Pat Garrett and Billy the kid that are shooting the heads off chickens and it's real. Yeah, I think I think the uh, that guy, the 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 screenwriter uh, mm-hmm. he had a he had a story about that saying that you know it's like he you know he kind of went back and was just like God you know I I feel there's a karmic price to be paid for what we did there in service of the movie but you know the excuse we always went with was well the people in that village ate well that night yeah so I mean at least at least in that case like that that's how chickens lose their heads so right. I mean at least the feeding people but that the cockfighters just. It, it, more reprehensible. Same thing yeah. with the Wild Bunch. Things happen to horses in that movie. You're like, no. Uh, 
Uh, and again, that, that was the era of filmmaking where, uh, yes. you know, an increasing number of filmmakers were willing to do just about anything they could within and, the very narrow, the wide letter of the law to for the sake of the picture. Yeah. And, you know, uh, Sam Peckinpah doesn't give a fuck about people. You think he's going to give a shit about a horse? Like not. Nah. No, nah. He's not that kind of guy. But War Notes was great. He's also, if you're not a Western person, you you still might know him because he was in Stripes. Yes, I think he was. He said that he wanted to do more comedy. Yeah, I, I saw Stripes for the first time this week. Never saw. It oh, before. really? Yeah, I, well, it was just a blind spot, I guess. How, but yeah, how does it funny... hold up? Because I haven't seen it probably in a good fifteen years. In terms of iffy material, it's pretty good. There isn't okay. a lot. There's like one joke that's a little, and it's only a joke. Like what they're joking about didn't happen. So, right. like, it's only a joke. There is the mud wrestling scene. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, those girls beat the shit out of John Candy. No, it, it was, uh, it's pretty good. And now I finally get why my friend in college would always joke about how he didn't wear underwear a lot. Like, <laughs> like, like, oh, that was a Stripes. Yeah, that makes okay, sense. you were yeah. making a reference. Okay, you, oh, Okay, yeah, no, I recommend Stripes. It's good. The last movie that he did was Blue Thunder, which I watched last night. I don't think I've ever seen Blue Thunder. Blue Thunder is a weird movie. Uh, it stars yeah, Roy Scheider, and the bad guy is Malcolm McDowell. Okay, that's always a good sign. Playing a Vietnam vet in L.A., so I don't know how that happened. And Daniel Stern's in it. He's like 24. Oh, wow. Candy Clark's there, too. I like Candy Clark. And it's a good movie. It's like an R-rated version of Airwolf. Uh, okay, all right. Yeah, yeah, no, you're selling me. You're selling me. Yeah. It has full nudity. <laughs> Okay, you're double selling me. Here we go. A woman doing yoga? Like it was it was it's 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 all right. It's a, I might need to check this one out. I I look, I'm a fan of Roy Scheider. I'm I'm willing on, to plumb the depths of the Scheiderverse. At the time of this recording, it is available on Amazon Prime. It has a fantastic all-electronic score. Like I'm sure I is saw Is it another tangerine was, dream dream joint? Because I know they did a lot of weird stuff around that time. Unfortunately, no, it is not a okay. Tangerine Dream joint. Ta- the the closest thing to th- that that Tangerine Dream did was the TV show Street Hawk about a, about a, about a superpowered motorcycle. Okay, that's a separate issue. Um, but no, it's a, it's a fun little movie, and like I'm sure I saw it when I was a kid because my dad's a terrible censor. So right, I, I do recommend that one. It's his last film, and he, he went out on a pretty good movie. I wish he would have done more work. He passed away pretty young, just like Sam Peckinpah did, just like a lot of these guys did, because. Cocaine and drinking and drinking and drinking and cocaine. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, 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 so I don't know the full. Like, I, I know Peck and Paw was a raging alcoholic and oh eventually, God, yeah. eventually discovered cocaine uh, after he met James Con. That'll do but, it. <laughs> yeah, but uh, so I don't. I know. I know Oates drank. I don't. Re- yeah. And I, I know that he would occasionally partake of psychedelics. We'll talk. Probably talk about later. Yep, we will. Uh, yeah. I don't really know his his, his history beyond that. I, I'm, I'm. There's no on the record of him doing cocaine, but he was friends with Sam Peckinpah. In the 70s. You figure if they're in their circles, probably at some point. And it's the 70s, and yeah. just it's just. And if you look at him, he had the same problem Peckinpah did. Like you look at Warren Oates when he's making stripes, and you're like, that guy has to be pushing 70. No, he's 50. Yeah. Like, he lived hard fast. He lived hard fast. As I found an article about Sam Peckinpah, an interview in the New York Daily News, and the writer is like, uh, he's at, at 48, but he looks 60. Yeah. He says, prematurely gray hair, heavy bags under his eyes, a life of hard living. So Yeah, I was looking at some photos of Peckinpah when he was directing, you know, 74 and, and, and 73 when he was doing Alfredo Garcia, and he he looks 
like a skeleton. Like he does not yeah. look good. Oh. He does not look good, and and he's not in a good place mentally. We'll get to the post the post Alfredo Garcia life at yeah. later on, but yeah, he yeah, it's a sad story. But yeah, but Warren Oates is absolutely fantastic as Benny, the main character, this this worthless piece of shit who is in it for the money. the The script describes Benny this absolutely fantastic. This is I I've, I read this this in the script for the movie. Benny is described as quote gone through 40 years of his life with a dollar 35 in one hand and an erection in the other and now <laughs> and now when it's time to find out which is which he doesn't want to look down yeah that sounds yeah. about right <laughs> i've met people like that so yeah, yeah. i mean mm-hmm. so like it, it's, it, it, as we talked about before it, the, the character was kind you know it whether officially or not the character was more or less a self-portrait of peck and paw and oh, yeah, totally. his own self-loathing tendencies yeah. apparently war notes like tailored the character around that. They, 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 he changed how he looked, and he, he, he. That's why he wears those ridiculous sun, sunglasses almost, almost the entire movie, just to kind of ape Peck and Paw's look. And it, it, when you know that, the movie's even darker. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, definitely, because like, he's just he's literally portraying the man who's telling him, you know, like action. Like it's just he's just the the, the shuffling gait and the kind of just yeah. squinty, sweaty, kind of just miserable, you know, expression he wears through pretty much the entire movie. Like that's not a pleasant portrayal of someone. Like that is you are you are getting down into the dark depths of a man's soul here. And at one point in the movie, two characters call him a loser. And he says no bird loses all the time. But those people, one of those people is Peckinpah's producer. Yep. And it's like that's Jesus Christ, man! Like the layers. Yeah, deep. The only other real, like it's it's almost a one man show. The only other like starring role in the film is by a woman named Isela Vega. She plays the girl Fandilita. She just passed away. She died this March. Yeah, I just saw that. Yeah, I was bummed out. She's a fantastic actress. She didn't do much work in America. She was a Mexican actress. Yes, I think she said she was a Playboy playmate at one time. She was the first, um, I think, the first Mexican woman in Playboy. Yeah, and she had a fairly prolific career in Mexico, I believe. She's in a million movies. She won five Ariel Awards, which are the Mexican Oscars. And if you if you if you go to the wiki for the Ariel Awards, <laughs> you get a picture of her holding her award. Wow, <laughs> she's just fantastic in this movie. She is haunting. Yes. Yeah. She gives just, a character that in I, I'm gonna say even in a different production of this movie, still with all the same people involved, would a, a character that would have felt completely tossed off and forgettable because mm-hmm. it's there there is some humanity, I think, in the way they write her, but mm-hmm. you you know, it's like you said, the way that women end up in Peck and Paw films tends to be as, you know, uh, objects of abuse. Yes. And people who are are essentially there to be pitied in some way mm-hmm. or another, and and like this character is obviously not devoid of that, but there is a mm-hmm. there's a real energy and a fire to the way that she comes at this very downtrodden character, this yeah. woman who, you know, is is mixing between different affairs, including one with the title character Alfredo Garcia, mm-hmm. but has this attachment to this Benny guy who is, yeah. you know, there's absolutely no prospect of this person at this point doing anything in his life other than sitting in this shitty bar, playing piano, drinking himself stupid, and periodically showing up in her life probably to make things worse. And, yeah. and, and <laughs> in, fact, in fact, yeah. definitely to make things worse. And, yes. you know, again, it's a character that could just be a, a pitiable, shrieking character under, you know, other circumstances. But she... 
like she doesn't you almost understand why she cares about this person and why she's willing to go along with this because mm-hmm. there is an actual humanity to the performance. Yeah, there's a couple scenes where a lot of acting, there's an old, old phrase, a lot of acting is reacting. Yeah. And the looks on her face during some of the darker moments and some of the sadder moments are just absolutely heartbreaking. And yeah. I can't imagine anyone else in this role. She's also fearless. It's a very unflattering role. And yeah, she's she's topless through I'd say a solid forty five percent of the of her runtime in the film, and and not and and not often not in very you know happy situations. And yeah, it's it's not and it's it's not a gussied up like nudity. Yeah. Like it is a yeah. splayed out. It is you know like you can see you know the marks on her body. Like they mm-hmm. don't really make her up in the way that you would say do in like a Playboy no. shoot. Like they no. kind of just let her be, and yeah. I think that actually is the thing that makes it feel less grody to me because it's just like there's a story in that commentary where he talks about how the first time she showed up on set and she had to do a nude scene she literally just climbed up on a hill took her shirt off and said and and said the cast look just get your get your ogles in now look now get in there let's do it now so that we can do the work and not be distracted by it yeah yeah she was at she was absolutely fearless it's it's really incredible just how how much of herself this emotionally and physically she puts herself out there. It's a fantastic performance. I wish she would have done more stuff in America. Apparently, yeah. she was on the Greatest American Hero TV show at once. Oh, good. So, yeah, well, you know that's that's a feather in your cap. The other major Mexican actor in this movie is uh, Emilio Fernandez. He plays El Jefe, the the crime lord. He was in the Wild Bunch. He's same character, pretty much. <laughs> oh yeah, he's like the general, right? He's the general yeah. in the Wild Bunch. In real life, Fernandez was a revolutionary soldier who was imprisoned by Mexico and escaped for Hollywood. <laughs> okay. And the rumor is when he was young is that he was literally the model for the Oscar statue. To, so there's no verification of this whatsoever. There's no verification for this. I mean, if you look at him at the time, the dude was just like, damn. He's like, got, even even in old age, like the man has an incredibly striking look to him. He has a striking look, but in, in the young age, it's like he has a striking look and he could be in a Charles Atlas book. Like he's right. just like chiseled from stone. He, he worked in, Ohio, in Hollywood for a while as like, on sets and in small stuff went back to mexico he got a pardon (laughs) went back to mexico began to direct apparently he was a massively influential director in mexico and a massively huge prick yeah he he shot someone in the balls because they didn't like his movie i yeah ha (laughs) he straight up he straight up murdered somebody like he's a killer He, he killed a farmer in an argument he was not a good person he he during the making of the Wild Bunch, apparently his ex-wife got kicked in the crotch by a horse, and he laughed and laughed and laughed. He makes Sam Peck and Paul look like Mother Teresa. You know, you wonder if maybe a certain personality type is perhaps drawn to one another. You know, like they they find way to find each other. Yeah, sit, hey man, shit and flies. You know, yeah. So. But there was the commentary track with Dawson is great because Dawson's about to talk shit about the guy, and then he stops and says he is dead, right? Yeah. Like he, no, yeah, he, no, he's a huge piece of shit. <laughs> no, no, but he wants to make sure he's dead first yeah. before he says anything, just in case. Like he could be 120 years old with a gun ready for, ready to come at him. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but he's he's he doesn't he's not in this movie much, but he has a good presence and you know, he 
he, he plays an evil bastard well because hey, he was an evil bastard. So yeah. you know, do what you know, do what you know. The a lot of like he has a lot of underlings and thugs and and other ne'er do wells working with him. The the two of note are these two characters, Sappinsley and Quill, and they're played by Robert Weber and Gig Young. I don't know a ton about Robert Weber other than the fact that he's in eight million movies. Yeah, you know. he's one of those dudes from like the from like the 1950s on who just showed up everywhere. Like I've seen that guy's face in a million things, but I never would pick his name out if I saw him in something. Yeah, he's he's the war movie version of Dick Miller. He's just in everything, and he's in Midway. He's in uh, the Dirty Dozen. He's in Barbara Streisand's movie Nuts. He's in <laughs> sure. He's in, he's in two Blake Edwards movies. He's in SOB and N10, and huh. Yeah, and he's in a ton of TV, but he worked forever. But like I said, he's kind of a blind spot in my film, my celebrity filmographies. But Gig Young is someone I know quite a bit about. And it's funny because when I watched this movie the first time, this was the first movie I saw with Gig Young in it. And so I had no idea who he was. And then over the past year or so, over the past year or so, I've gotten way into Doris Day movies. Like, way okay. into Doris Day. And he's in a lot of Doris Day movies. And so, seeing him go from Doris Day to this makes that character even darker. It's such a weird... Like, those two are such weird characters oh, because they're yeah, clearly... Fascinating. Like, they're clearly not just regular guys in the employ of no. this, you know, this crime lord. Like, they're, they're, they're billed as bounty hunters... But they have this operation, which you see the first time that ben, yeah. like once they, they so they go visit Benny in the in in the rest you know the the bar that he works in, asking around about Alfredo Garcia, and then he goes to once he finds out where what you know what's going on with Alfredo, he goes to visit this hotel. And first of all, the hotel like one of my favorite <laughs> old Twitter accounts was interior decor in Colombo. Um, it's, it's, it's one of my favorite things about Columbo is just seeing the okay. rich, the rich pricks houses in those, in those shows, because the decor is always amazing. And the decor of this hotel is just unbelievable. Can't, I can't say enough good things about just how seventies the whole thing is, but you get mm -hmm. there and they have this like borderline government operation going on with guys on phones, dudes, you know, yeah. standing on guard with machine guns. Like there's something going on there. That's not just, you're not just a bounty hunter. You're something no. else. It's it's almost surreal of how big the operation is. It's yeah. like, and I mean, look, it, it's a million dollars, which in, yeah. in 1974 money is a lot. And it's a lot of money. But you know, these guys are just there waiting. Like they're there. You know, when he says, "Bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia," so clearly he knew they they were brought on for something. But like, did they know yeah. what they were getting into? Who knows? Mm -hmm. And yeah, they're they're great characters, even though they're not in there much. I love Gig Young. He's in. Like I said, a ton of Doris Day films. He's in uh, Young at Heart. Gig Young is the dude in the movie who does not get Doris Day. Like right. that's his that's his role. He's he's the second banana in Young at Heart in Cheetah's Pet. He's in Tunnel of Love, which is a Doris Day romantic comedy directed by Gene Kelly and starring Richard Widmark. Okay, it's, it's a weird movie. He's in Touch of Mink with Cary Grant, which is an awesome movie. He won an Oscar. For they shoot horses, don't they? Have you ever seen that nightmare film? You know, you no, know. I no, I don't yeah. think I have. I would remember it. I guess I know the title, but I don't think I've ever actually seen it. It's a dark and depressing film about a, a dance marathon during the Great Depression, and it's super dark. He won the Oscar for that in '69. He was an alcoholic for most of his career, but at that point, 
it went into overdrive. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did not know this until I started researching. He was supposed to be the main character in Blazing Saddles, like Gene Wilder's character. Oh, he no was, way. Yeah, and they filmed one day with him. And then they had to fire him because he was sick from alcohol withdrawal. Oh. Yeah. and I just like, I'm trying to imagine that movie without Gene Wilder, and I can't. Yeah. And I, I'm trying to imagine Gig Young playing that comedic a role because yeah. Gig, Young's, Gig Young's style of comedy in the Doris Day films is he's kind of halfway between the straight man and like he sets up jokes. Like that's yeah. his that's his, his his bit. Always a pig. He plays a pig a lot. And so like he his career went downhill. His last movie is Game of Death with Bruce Lee. Well, with not Bruce Lee, with fake Bruce Lee. Right. That one they made after Bruce Lee died, which is almost unwatchable. And then Gig Young's life ended badly, and let's just leave it at that. And if you if you want to, yeah, learn no, more I, about I read up on what happened, and it's it's dark. <sighs> anyway, the only other people really of note in this movie are Chris Christopherson and his keyboard player Donnie Fitz. <laughs> yes, showing up in a maybe the weirdest scene in the entire movie. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about more about that in a bit. But yeah, you know, if you don't, Chris Christopherson's awesome. He's a great actor. I think. Oh back yeah. Then. You know, he and was that was still pa- pretty. I mean, that wasn't the beginning of his acting career. It was still fairly early on, like the '60s it's, is yeah. when he kind of got started, right? Yeah, it's after Billy the Kid. It's it's more of a cameo than a role. He only has yeah. the one scene. He's great in Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. He's also maybe the only good thing in Convoy. Uh, I have this affection for oh. Convoy, despite fa- I will not defend it on any level. It's not I will, particularly. I will, I will hang up this phone call. No, <laughs> it is a fairly indefensible movie, but. I can't hate it because I have a deep, brutal affection for C.W. McCall's Convoy. And the movie is, again, it's a dumb-ass movie, but I kind of love it despite itself. The things I like about Convoy, the movie, the things I like about Convoy, the opening shots are beautiful. Uh-huh. There, there is a great bar fight. Yes. I like the character of Black Widow. Mm-hmm. And there was a dope car crash through the roof of a barn. All of these things are true. Other than that, I'll say it again: not defensible. But yeah, I, no, it's not. just it's it's a movie I can't bring myself <laughs> to fully hate. Yeah, but so, yeah, I, I just I watched that. I went. I watched all of. Uh, yeah. It's, oh God. Anyway, it's, I I I double dipped on Convoy between this and the Smoking the Bandit episode. So. Smoking the Bandit, I, much better movie. Smoking the Bandit, much better movie. Watch Smoking the Bandit after you yeah. watch Alfredo Garcia and you're like, I want to die. You should watch Smoking the Bandit because it's it'll That'll it'll bring it back up. Burt Reynolds' laugh will do it to anybody. Film this movie in uh, Mexico, like I like I said, he wanted to. He was like, "Fuck Hollywood, I'm going to Mexico." Uh, in 1973, apparently Sam Peckinpah was in good spirits at the start, but drugs and alcohol just really started to take his toll and by the end of the movie he was barely involved with it apparently yeah like dawson shot the last scene yeah the whole the 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 very end of the movie which we'll we'll talk about more later but like the very last shots like there's a story dawson tells where like you know i guess peck and paw had found his way to another female interest somewhere you know in his various bar travails and was like yeah, I'm uh, I'm getting on a plane to go see this lady uh, finish the movie for me. It's like a sad version of the end of Good Will Hunting. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I do not like them apples. Yeah, it's like, I got to go see about a girl and cocaine. Bye. So, but 
you know, it, it is entirely Sam Peckinpah's vision. It's the only film he ever made that he said he had complete control over. There's that, the quote you see a lot. It's like, uh, I did Alfredo Garcia and I did it exactly the way I wanted to, good or bad, like it or not. That was my film. So it's his baby, you know. He, yeah. He he said he he knows it's disturbing. He said it's the last of my disturbing pictures. <laughs> it's like, well, convoy was disturbing in its own way, but yeah, yeah I mean it, that's just <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, this it's it's a fascinating movie, and I I do want to talk about the plot a little bit, and I don't like to do scene by scene dissections. This is not a three hour podcast. I'm not going to yeah. do that. But we're, I want to talk about maybe up into. Up until the scene with Gig Young and uh, Sapensley, that the, the bar scene, I want to talk about that. Yeah, and then I'm going to give everyone a spoiler warning, and then just so you all know, I'm going to transplant that part of the conversation to after the end music of the podcast. So then, if you it, then if you if you don't want to be spoiled, you don't have to be. So, but I think there's some interesting stuff I want to talk about. And I don't, but I don't want to spoil the movie. So this is a movie that begs to be discussed in specifics. Yes, it does. So we're gonna get into it now a little bit. Like the, I think the opening is fantastic. The fake out with you think it's a western. Yeah, you know, because it opens with this really idyllic, like creek and this woman by the creek. And you, if if you said this movie took place in 1865, you'd believe it. Yeah, and like then, you know, it's it's her hanging out there. There's a hacienda in the background. Yeah. Like two guys yes. in essentially cowboy garb walk up to mm-hmm. her. Like it, yeah, you're right. It totally, it immediately evokes that vibe. And it's a very like calming vibe. And it, the, I think the way it escalates, like when those everything seems okay, then those guys show up and like, oh, this is bad. And then she goes into the room with her father, El Jefe, the the crime lord, and it's really bad. And then he strips her and breaks a fucking arm. Yeah, like to find out who because he's pregnant, yeah, and he wants to know who got her pregnant, and it's Alfredo Garcia. He'll go. He says the name of the movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. One of the best uh, titular line readings, maybe of all time. Yeah. Yes, he says the he says the name of the movie, and then everyone goes into action to find Alfredo Garcia, and then we cut to a montage of uh, Gig Young and the other guy, you know, driving around Mexico looking for Alfredo Garcia, and they make they make their way to this shithole of shithole and shithole land bar where Benny, Warren Oates, is playing piano for tourists, pretty much. That's his job. Yeah, and, I, w- I want to talk about that montage for a second, because oh, oh, I'm it's, sorry, the, go ahead. it's the one part of the movie I always forget exists until I yeah, sit down yeah, and watch too. it again. And it's lo- one, it's longer than you think it's going to be. Yeah. Uh, and the thing that always struck me was like the part where they they sh- they intercut shots of airplanes, and it's like it, that was always a little confusing to me because yeah. they're clearly still in Mexico, like they haven't gone that far. And I mean, Mexico is a sizable country, but you know, I mean, exactly. like how far could they yeah. have possibly had to go? And then you find out actually from from listening to that commentary why yeah. they did that. <laughs> and this yeah. is a funny story. Go the, ahead. the screenwriter was like, "Yeah, so in order to shoot in Mexico." Uh, we had to essentially write in the screenplay that the scenes involving El Jefe and his daughter and all that stuff were taking place somewhere else because yeah. the Mexican authorities or whatever just did not like the idea of you know a, a Mexican crime boss committing these kinds of violences and whatever in the country. Never mind all the other stuff that happens in the movie, but you know that oh, particular yeah. bit I guess yeah. was, was over the line. So they like I think they said they wrote it that it was like oh he's in Spain or Peru mm-hmm. or something somewhere but they yeah. never explicitly say that and 
but it's kind of intercut that way. Like, oh, they could be coming from anywhere. But in reality, it's all in Mexico. Yeah. And but I forgot the name where where they are, like the the town that Benny lives in. Well, so they shot it in Mexico City. I forget what they call it. It is in a shithole. And the scene where Sepensley and Quill, the, the, the bounty hunters, show up there, that's my favorite scene in the movie. And yeah, it's it's like top two or three for me. And so those two guys are gay. I like I so I, I I is that it's obviously never explicitly said, but that was that what I took away from it, too, was if, yeah, even if they weren't gay, there was a heavily implied like there is a deeper relationship there than one yeah. of business and, and friendship. We'll get to the other part of that later. But yeah, yeah, because what, well, there's one part where one of them really quickly like moves the other guy around by by grabbing his his thigh like right. not you have to really look for it it's there and then when a couple of mexican prostitutes come up to them when they're talking to Benny and one of them makes a move for Sepensley's crotch he elbows her in the fucking head yeah like almost instinctive like you you straight would up imagine- Mitsuharu Misawa style like full on <laughs> elbow to the dome and she goes down like a sack of bricks and nobody does anything. Yep, no one moves. Nobody moves because they these two guys, they're old men in terrible suits, but they just exude this energy of like, I will kill you and I will kill your family and I'll get off on it. And they're terrifying. And the thing I like about them being gay is that them being evil bastard pricks and them being gay have nothing to do with each other. Right. And I, I just like that. I wish there were, you know, I wish there were more. If you're going to have a, I like it when it's a gay villain and the gayness is not part of his otherness. It's right. just a fact. And I think that's really fascinating. I also like the idea of that they're so macho they can't be with chicks. Like, <laughs> right. Just, yeah, they're just the, the, like the interest has turned into a revulsion. Yeah. And they, the conversation with Benny is fascinating. Like, Benny gets an idea of what they want and he starts dropping hints like and making jokes like, ah, dead or alive, huh? It's like, dead. Preferably dead. Just so they're on the same page. It's, yeah. uh, just the subtlety of that scene is is amazing. And then he gets, he finds out that Alfredo Garcia was with his girlfriend a while ago. <laughs> Goes to see her. Well, so Garcia is a gigolo. I don't know if they ever actually say that explicitly yeah. in the movie, but the, the 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 notion is that he's a gigolo and that he is just sleeping around constantly. Yeah, it's like yeah, he's 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 a gigolo or a player or a pig or yeah, you know, he finds out that he was with Alita, his girlfriend, goes to see her. It's you was she's a high class prostitute. From, I think that's the implication, right? Yeah, like the 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 bordello that they go to, like you know, obviously there 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 are sex workers there taking you know men up to various rooms or whatever. Mm-hmm. But like in the the foyer where they're kind of hanging out and talking, like she's just sitting there singing yeah. songs, you know. Like there's just yeah. guys sitting standing there, with, or sitting there with rapt attention while she sings, yeah. you know, these beautiful songs. And there's you know like a lot of partying and sort of uh, you know kind of getting down going on. But like it's not. You know, it's not a hole in the wall. Like it looks like you know a fairly up, uh, up cl- upper class establishment. Yeah, and she tells him what happened to Alfredo Garcia, and he says he he's not entirely forthright with her, but he's like, "Well, we gotta go." And so we gotta go see him. We gotta go see him. And so 
She stays over. He wakes up the next day, pours liquor on his crotch because he has crabs and all. Yep. No, first he picks at them. First he spends a couple <laughs> minutes like being like, the fuck is this? All right, and pull, pulls a couple of them off and then t- douses it with alcohol. <laughs> and then they're on their way. This man will become an animal. This woman's dreams of love will be destroyed. I've been here before. You don't know the way. Innocent people will suffer. Without Fredo's help, we can do anything, honey. Holy ground will be desecrated. You don't want me to be part of that, do you? You are a part of it. 25 people will die. Just being together, it's enough. No, it's not, baby. Bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia. Sam Peckinpah, director of the greatest adventure films of our time, has made possibly his most powerful and startling motion picture. Bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia, rated R. Yeah, dark movie all around, not a happy movie, but, and dark and not happy, and surprisingly, you know, not a hit. <laughs> no, um, no, not well regarded upon its release. Yeah, so I've learned from doing this podcast, any any box office numbers before Star Wars are hard to find. Right. Because people didn't care. Movies rarely opened all at once across America, so they would right. do rolling starts. But this opened... In L.A., in August 7th, 1974, movies playing around this time were Death Wish, The Conversation, Blazing Saddles, 8 million amazing Grindhouse films, yeah. uh, a re-release of 2001, all kinds of weird shit. And it bombed. The movie probably cost about $1.5 million to make, and it maybe made half that. Right. Yeah. And the ad campaigns were terrible. All the the posters, the post you know about the poster of this movie. So I I know. So okay, here's the, <laughs> yeah, I I have, story. here's a weird story I have about yeah. this movie and a friend of mine. So uh, the poster, like the the the, the one sheet poster they released for the U.S. is not a particularly great or memorable poster. You know, it's yeah, just a picture one. of the guy of the fist holding the locket with uh, Alfredo's face in it, and I think some of them have a little bit of war notes on them, but uh, some mm-hmm. don't. Mm-hmm. But, you know, whatever. But so I have a friend who travels <laughs> a lot for work um, and he's one of those people who just likes giving people weird gifts. And so one of his weird gift to me, and it has been an ongoing thing. He hasn't done it recently because he hasn't been traveling as much Obviously, But uh, yeah. over over several years and several birthdays. Uh, he would send me a different international poster for bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia every year. <laughs> Um, so I have like the German poster around here somewhere. I think there's a Spanish one. Um, the one I have framed and up on my, uh, on my wall is the Turkish poster, uh, which is great because it doesn't look like anyone in the movie, but Uh it is, it is, someone told a Turkish person, Hey, this is the title of this movie. There's a locket. Here's what the one sheet looks like in America. Go nuts. And so it is this incredibly just artistically beautiful rendering of a screaming man with a torn, a muscle bound man in a torn shirt (laughs) with a machete, a bloody machete tearing the head off some guy, definitely not Alfredo Garcia, um, while a mostly nude woman sits behind them with her back turned to the poster. um, And it's it's a beautiful work of art. 
that sounds absolutely because I only have the American poster and it's kind of boring. Yeah. I only have two Amer- I only have two full size theatrical posters framed in my storage locker in America, but I have the poster for that and the poster for the Gauntlet. Okay, yeah, I, I've the, never actually seen the Gauntlet poster, but the, oh man, that's a Frank Vazetto one. I'll, it's amazing. I'll have to look that one up. Yeah, but yeah, like but it, the, the the other international ones aren't actually radically different from like no. the American one. Like they they're slightly different, slightly different art and 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 logo editing. But this one is just in a completely different universe, and it's great. If you framed all of those and put them in one room, that'd be the biggest red flag for anyone ever. Not absolutely, to be do not yeah. go in that house. Get out no. immediately. <laughs> yes, with your head. But yeah, they didn't know how to market it. The trailers are terrible. The trailers play up the violence. Like twenty-five people will die, yeah. and it's a really hard film to market. And the critic, the apparently the preview the, screenings were were rotten too. Like oh, there were yeah, there was well, one yeah. that they described where like literally all but ten people left. Yeah, because that's the kind of movie you have to know going in what it is a little bit. Like, yeah, you know, if if I if I found out I was getting invited to a preview screening and it was like, what's what's a dark movie? Um, here's a weird poll: Bright Young Things, an Evelyn Waugh movie about the war, like, mm-hmm. or some some dark movie. Like, no, I might have movie theater, man. I want to see, you know, Godzilla. You know, not. Cry, not whatever the hell this is. Not whatever the hell this is. But like the the critical split seems to be 80-20. 80% hated it. 20% thought it was a, a masterpiece. And one of those 20% was Roger Ebert at the time. Yeah. Uh, Ebert, he gave it yeah. a four-star review. Four-star review. This movie is some kind of bizarre masterpiece. It's a psychic ballet. You know? It was one of those movies he went back and re-reviewed many decades mm-hmm. later for his website. And he's even yeah. more effusive about it in that review. He wrote an obituary for Sam Peck and Pawn. In that, he calls it a forgotten masterpiece. He, it is. I, and uh, the thing is, he's oh, yeah. right. I, I genuinely right. think this movie is a masterpiece in its oh, own totally. deeply fucked up way. Yes. It, it, like, And I, I, it is... You know, when when Peckinpah says this is the only movie I got to make my way, it shows like it is clearly like not just the character, but like the whole thing feels like a a disaster, like a just a twisted self-portrait, you know, and and not necessarily of events of his life, but things he could see himself getting wrapped up in like lives he could imagine for himself and horrors that he could imagine for himself very easily. Yeah. And. I think a lot of people even recognize that in the review, and that, that's why they don't like it. Uh, yeah. One of the reviews is like, all during the movie, the Mexican air is polluted with smoky exhaust from a battery of used cars, a fair enough symbol of Peck and Paw's pollution of the screen. That's from Good the Lord. Boston Globe. Kevin Kelly. Another one from the Wilmington, Delaware m- Morning News. He just calls it, not even worth considering, murder machismo. Sam Peckinpah is becoming the decade's most overrated director. So people went down for what he was putting up there, I think. Yeah. just And that had, like, it, it, you know, any filmmaker, you put mm-hmm. something that personal up on screen, something that you feel that deeply about, and it gets, you know, just completely brutalized that way. That's going to fuck you up. Yeah. Even more it, so it, than it, you already are. He was already fucked up. He 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 never apologized for it. He never backed down for it. It was it, this was his. Like I said, he he made the movie he wanted to make. Yeah. He would get really mad at people who would criticize him for violence. He was like, "What am I supposed to do? Pretend, pretend violence isn't real? Like it's a it's a thing, you know?" Yeah. And so th- this movie, I think, this movie also kind of cost him his wife. He was making the movie, and his wife wanted to get back together with him, and he's like, "No, the movie comes first, and just left her. Well, then he met so, some other woman while he was in the yes, middle of it. So exactly, 
clearly not a person who you really want to settle down with. No, no. And that that seemed to be the portrayal of everybody who worked with him, too, because this is the last movie really with his crew. Yeah. Like, it's his last War Notes movie. So Dawson quit the movie because he was he was becoming an alcoholic and depressed. I think Dawson El- also said like his wife basically told him yeah. you have to not do this anymore because yeah. this person is driving you crazy. Yeah, LQ Jones had already had already left. He's not in this movie. The dude who plays I forgot the actor's name, but he's the, he's LQ Jones's buddy in the Wild Bunch. He has that kind of high pitched voice. He had already left. Slim Pickens is not there. Like the the Sam Pickens part regulars are long gone. Like and, Oates is kind of like the the one mainstay there. Yeah, and and Chris Christopherson. And but then Oates never made another movie with him, did Oates he? Oates never did. The only person to stay with him after this was Chris Christopherson, because after this, there was mm-hmm. uh, there's a few movies after this. So, th- like everyone says, this is the movie where Peck and Paul lost his way, like from a mental standpoint, like he just became too far gone. So this movie bombed. He had, Pat and Billy the Kid bombed. He had two bombs in a row. He made the Killer Elite, which I've seen. I own it. I don't think it's that bad. But I have no memory of it. I've like, seen it, so I've saw it actually fairly recently, like in the last few years. And okay. it's not like it's it's not a super memorable movie, but I think it gets maybe shit on more than it actually deserves. Like it is, yeah. I, it is another one of those movies where I think the studio did a lot to kind of meddle in in what he yeah. wanted to do, but also who's to say what he wanted to do was actually good. But mm-hmm. the, you know, it's it's a completely acceptable movie. I think it's yeah. just that. And, it, but but for a for a guy whose star was already kind of fading at that point, I can kind of see why people look at that and go, "Oh." And it, it's not very it, it's very seventies spy movie like mm-hmm. it's not the most original film. It, it does doesn't have, feel like a peck and paw movie for the most no, part. No, it doesn't. And that does have Gig Young and it does have Mako. <laughs> okay, yeah, and uh, that's James Con, Robert Duvall. And then after that, there's Cross of Iron. Have you seen Cross of Iron? I have not seen that one. Ooh man, I watched that a couple days ago. It's on Amazon, but only in SD. That's a, a World War II movie set in the Eastern Front. From the perspective of the Germans, oh, it's it's an interesting film because James Coburn's the main character and David Warner's in it. <laughs> oh, David Warner! I love David Warner. He's playing the most British German soldier ever, and it's it it handles that. It handles the whole hey, these guys are Germans part pretty well. It's like there are some characters in the film who are obviously go rah rah Nazis, you know. Yeah, and but James Coburn's character. Obviously, doesn't want to be there. Uh, all of his soldiers know the war is over; they lost, yeah. and so they're all just trying to stay alive for the war ends. And so, I think from that, I think there's an interesting story there. You can tell. Oh, it's and you know, it, it actually is a pretty good movie, but it is brutal. It is, it is, it is an anti-war movie, and I'm already anti-war. I'm good. Yeah. So the only thing I know about this movie is something I was actually I read while I was reading up on stuff for this podcast, mm-hmm. uh, which is that this is a movie he had to make sober, and it's one of the only movies he ever made sober because he was in Yugoslavia. He 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 made it not on cocaine, right? He was drinking. Okay, so but he, but he wasn't doing drugs at least. He wasn't doing drugs, and Dawson says that Peckinpah drunk is not that bad because eventually he'll pass out. Right. So it's the cocaine uh, that really animates. Yes. And then when he came back to America, he edited it while on cocaine. 
Okay. And but that's that's an interesting movie. If 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 you don't mind the super dark war movies, I, I would say check it out. It's, I mean, it I love not- Come and See. You know, like I can totally deal with like absolutely brutal war movies. I just yeah. I, it's it's one of those movies that I never hear talked about, so I wasn't no. sure if it was actually worth watching or not. And and uh, James Coburn's really good in it. I love James Coburn, so he's great in that. But then he made Convoy, and yeah. the greatest movie ever made. <laughs> Sam Peckinpah's biggest hit. That had to sting in a way, like not to say that, like, you know, he was angry about having to make Convoy or whatever, but like having that be your biggest hit, like look at the body of work up to that point and have that be the thing like that Sugar Ray releasing fly, you know, and then realizing, (laughs) fuck, we have to be that band from now on shit. I would say if you want to be more positive, it's, it's Grateful Dead doing Touch of Grey. Because I think Sugar Ray embraced it more than other bands. Yeah, would that's fair. That's <laughs> yeah. you know, that's not that's not a bad. That's probably a better comparison. Yeah. Also older. It skews a little more to that generation. So yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but like that's the one where he just completely went off the wagon. Apparently, James Coburn directed it without saying, without getting credit. Right. Like because he was such a mess, he would just go in a trailer and do do coke all day, and. It's like you like it. It's not unwatchable. It, it, I don't. I, I don't. I. It's not a good movie. I again. Okay, I will yeah, say yeah. there's nothing really defensible about it. I just like it because I like trucker bullshit. I love trucker culture. I love CB culture. I love all that dumb shit. And it is. It is a distilled dose of that in a way that I find to be enjoyable in a very campy kind of way. And but then Peckinpah's last film is in 1983, which is it's weird to see Peckinpah's name in an 80s movie, and it's of uh, the Osterman Weekend. No idea what that even is. So that's based on a book by Robert Ludlum. Okay, the the born guy, the born the, the guy. one of the all time airport it bought a book in an airport authors. Yes. So this movie, I watched this also on Amazon, also only in SD. That's usually a, a warning sign. It's like, we didn't want to mess with this. We and have not bothered to release this really since it was maybe on Laserdisc once. <laughs> it was on DVD. Okay. Uh, Anchor Bay. It's, a, it's um, it, Apparently there's a Blu-ray too, so if you really want to go in. But mm. it's a weird movie. It has a strange cast. It has Rutger Hauer, mm-hmm. John Hurt, mm-hmm. Craig T. Nelson. Mm, now you're talking. Dennis Hopper. You're selling uh, me on this, honestly. Chris Sarandon. Okay. Uh, Meg Foster. Uh-huh. And Burt Lancaster. Wait, Meg Foster <laughs> is the woman from They Live, right? Yes, with the scary okay. eyes. Uh, yes, okay. And it, also, Meg Foster's eyes in SD are terrifying because you can't see her pupils. So Right, because they're basically yeah. white. Yeah, she so has like freaky the eyes. The most gray oh. eyes anyone has ever had. So it's a it's a spy movie kind. It's a cold, it's a very well, it's cold a love war movie. story. So I would assume so. It's a Cold War movie. John Hurt plays the worst CIA agent ever, okay. and his idea of CIA work is basically night trap. Like they they wire this whole house and have cameras in it. It's it it it's not good. It, okay, I, I I where would I rank it? It's. It's. I liked it more than Convoy. It seems like it's maybe an interesting curiosity at best. It 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 is one of the sad things. So kind of like when you watch Convoy. Convoy has like two scenes with the Sam Peckinpah slow motion cross cutting. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. And when the but the source material is bad, so it's just it's just sad. Same yeah. thing here. There's some cross cutting 
for during the the fight scenes, but it's just bad. Also, the poster for that movie has Rutger Hauer with amazing hair holding a bow and arrow at the at like straight at you. That's not in a movie, <laughs> right? Okay, one of those. It's like it's like so, the Turkish poster for Alfredo Garcia. Got it. Yeah, but I think more more intentionally deceiving. Yeah. So no, but that's his last film. Unfortunately, that came out in '83. He passed away in '84. So. So you did that miss one thing that I found really interesting about his late huh? career is that he very briefly dipped into the world of music video directing. Oh, really? Only for two Julian Lennon videos. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Julian Lennon. Oh, Julian Lennon. I the feel, less famous, like at that time, the more famous of the two Lennon sons, but like yeah. it, it uh, ultimately the less interesting of the two Lennon sons. I, uh, I always feel so sorry for that kid because he stuck with that name and that voice, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. He also did, he also did second work on a Bette Midler movie I never heard of called Jinxed. Okay. I've like, never seen it. Second unit work on that just to prove he could be sober enough to make a movie. I had never seen that. But yeah, it's his, it's sad he went out that way. I think it's, you know, he has a good legacy, and people nowadays look back at the Wild Bunch and stuff. But I think this movie was influential for a certain type of filmmaker. I, I see a lot of this movie in Coen Brothers films. Yes. You know, No Country for Old Men and Blood Simple specifically. Like, the way that it sort of treats its violence as sudden and often very just like, there's there's no real stylization of it outside mm-hmm. of that last shot Mm-hmm. Like a lot of the, the, even the shootouts like are just pre- mm-hmm. are like very blunt, very quick. And it's yeah. just like people just kind of flailing for, you know, for their, for their lives. Like the way that they deliver violence in that movie, I could totally see the, like the Coen's influence in it. And there's a movie called, um, have you ever seen the movie Blue Ruin? Oh yeah. That, that I get big vibes, big, uh, Gus, well, Fidel Garcia vibes from Blue Ruin. Yeah, I could see it. Yeah, and that's a great movie also that makes you want to kill yourself. So there's that. But yeah, it's hard to like think of films that, if you like this, you should watch this. You know, I, I can only really think of other dark 70s films. Like I mentioned Charlie Varick. Like seriously, Alex, if you like this movie, you should watch Charlie Varick. It's, it's a more fun version of this. <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, uh, I'm, I've written that down and I will check that out. And it's 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 Walter Matthau action movies are amazing. This every time, like you know, I, I'm trying like, to think of a movie I've seen Walter Matthau in that I didn't like, and they're actually I, like I honestly I'm not coming to. I'm sure there yeah, is. I'm sure there yeah. is a bad Walter Matthau. Like I think I saw the Dennis the Menace movie. That's not very good. But like other than so, that, I'm so Odd Couple Two is not great. Okay, but also maybe Sorcerer is one I'd recommend. I love uh, Sorcerer. Yeah, I did a, I did an episode on Sorcerer already, and uh, Rolling Thunder. No, Which, you know what? I've, I've. That's one of those movies that I've like. I've meant to watch for years, but I've never seen it. That's a Paul Schrader movie. So there you go. Yeah. That, that tells you right there. And that's a fantastic. That's a fantastic dark movie about revenge not going right. So check those out, and you know, maybe plan a double feature with a happy film afterwards. I would say, you know, <laughs> if you can find you. one to pair with that, because they're really. I don't know. Watch Fletch, I guess, with it. You know, maybe that's that's <laughs> how you pair those two things together. I I do like to make what when when I can have friends over, I like to either plan really really good double headers or really 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 terrible ones. Yeah. So like yesterday, this coincidentally watched Black Shampoo and Blue Thunder. So black and blue. So hey. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, but I'm pretty sure we watched. Uh, for, I watched Alfredo Garcia this week, right before I watched an Andy Sedaris film. 
Oh God, I love Andy Sedaris. Well, I love a, Andy Sedaris so that's much. A separate, separate episode, but yeah. Just so, a, talk about a filmmaker who knew what yeah, he wanted to make and then kept making it. Good lord. <laughs> and well, off topic, but really quick, like Andy Sedaris, like yo, who's not the target market for that movie? Me. But yep. <laughs> but. It does, but you know what? No, there's a craft. If the craft is there, and with him, it absolutely is. That I think it, it transcends all sexual interests when it comes to what that guy was into. And on a high note, yeah. So anyway, I think that's. Uh, do you got anything else about this movie you want to say, Alex? Not too much. You know, I think there's a lot of interesting small details in that movie. Mm-hmm. I think the way that he often, the way that he uses it to sort of portray that, like, Americans in Mexico are either exploiters or wannabe exploiters, you know, is is kind of an under, under-talked-about aspect of that movie. Like, there's really no mm-hmm. American in that movie that isn't a huge piece of shit and finding a way to inflict itself on the land, which... You know, in a way, I, again, maybe kind of mirrors the experience of him wanting to go to Mexico and make movies there because he was sick of dealing with Hollywood. So he wanted to inflict his bullshit on that country instead. <laughs> yeah. And he, yeah, it is interesting. He said he would only make movies in Mexico, but he never did again. Yeah. And I, yeah. my understanding is that he had some legal troubles there, like later in his life that probably prevented him from ever doing that again. And yeah. Frankly, I, you know, look, it, it, he died an ignoble death and he mm-hmm. treated people miserably throughout that life. I think, you know, the, the the eternal question these days is what do you do with artists that you love that were notoriously garbage people? Mm-hmm. And my opinion often tends to land on, you know, parse out and think about what it is about those people's art that you like maybe mm-hmm. understand what it is about them that you identified with or that you you found something, you know, that you found enjoyment in. Do, you don't have to lionize a person to like the art they made. Yeah. And I think it, there is no better example of that than Sam Peckinpah. Like, the and- man made many incredible films, genuinely incredible films, and no aspect of his life or his working process should be emulated by anyone. no. And one thing I'd add to that is with like problematic people, like it's kind of a cop out. But if they're dead, I mean, you can't cancel a guy who's been dead since the eighties. Yeah, I'm you, sorry, it's just it, not you possible. Can, you, you can bring up what he did, the bad things he did, and yeah. and to give it context. But you're not helping him by no. <laughs> by supporting his career. You're not gonna you know give him any money. You know, if anyone gets his money, it's his kids, and they probably deserve it. So because they didn't kill him, so. Yeah. You know, the, the, I I can watch a movie by him guilt free. Guilt free. I don't have any issues with that. If but if somebody else does, I get it. You know, you do you. Yeah. I'm not gonna. Yeah, everyone's uh, different, and, and I think everyone should approach it from their own comfort level and their own you know willingness to engage with that sort of stuff. Like for me, totally. you know, I don't have any real skin in the game, so I can still look at the art and go, yes, this this resonated with me at a time in my life, and I still think these are great films. Yeah. But like. Peck and Paw as a person is not a person I ever want to talk about no. in anything other than, man, that guy was fucked up. And I would also say, if you say, decide you want to watch Sat Peck and Paul films, maybe don't watch four in two days. I'm just going to, don't, don't. Just, or don't, if you then, do, just make sure that, you know, you've, you've got the right medication and you know, like, where your head is at because you're not going to come out of that feeling good. And if you do, don't. If you do watch four Sam Peckinpah films on a weekend, make sure your Monday is not spent teaching people English. Uh, oh, God. Oh, <laughs> <because> man. <laughs> that's my day job. And wow. that was 
Although one of my students is this old, I teach this old guy who's basically like the Japanese version of my dad and just likes Western. So we just spent the entire time talking about Alfredo Garcia. So that was pretty cool. But yeah, right on. As, a, as a whole, no, I don't recommend that. But anyway, yeah. Um, so yeah, Alex, thanks again for uh, talking today about this this wonderful, terrible piece of art. Um, if people want to find you on the internet, where should they go? Uh, let's see. So giantbomb.com is mm-hmm. the website about video games that uh, I do most of my uh, video and podcasting work on. I'm on Twitter, Alex underscore Navarro, uh, just like Dave Navarro, but we are not related. No. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> I'm on I'm on other parts of the Internet, but I'd say those are the, the easiest ways to find me. You want you want to plug your band? Oh, sure. Yeah, I'm in a hardcore yeah. band. Uh, we're called None Above All. We've kind of been on hiatus throughout the uh, the COVID pandemic, but, uh, but you know, we're, we're getting vaccinated. I'm vaccinated now, so hopefully Ooh. in the near future we'll be able to reassemble. And you, you, gotta, there's a, you, can, you got a band camp for that. So Yes, we have a band camp page. We have a yeah. Facebook page. Just yeah. None Above All New York City Hardcore. Look, for, look us up. That's cool. Yeah, and uh, for people listening to this episode, really quick, I want to go into what I got coming up next month because this one's coming up at the end of April. So in May, on these, we have new episodes every Thursday. So the week after this, I'm doing an episode with an uh, old friend from college, and we're going to be talking about Cloak and Dagger, the uh, Dabney Coleman. I guess, oh, wow. Video. Oh, I love that movie. I know. It's a great movie, right? So, yes. And yes, speaking... It's it's kind of a different dad movie. It's a movie everyone saw with their dads. <laughs> I, I I have a deep love of Dabney Coleman. So me too. I, yeah, and that was what led me to seek it out, and it's great. That's a great movie, and it has a strange video game connection that we'll talk about on the episode. Uh, the following week, a YouTuber who has a channel called um, A Question of Character, a guy named Norm, who does a lot of fun video game videos, he's going to be on here, and we're going to be talking about Golgol 13, the animated movie. Hell yeah. Uh, which is a beautiful beautiful like let's throw all the bubble economy money at this movie gorgeous animated movie with er- very bad early cg just you know great stuff after that my friend elliot who does the progressive rock podcast with me alexander's ragtime band which you should also check out uh <laughs> we'll be talking about smoking the bandit yes uh, one of the greatest movies of all time in my opinion fantastic awesome stuff the second Hal Nita movie I'll be talking about because before this one, Alex, there's an episode of, about BMX Bandits and Rad. Oh, and, wow. And then I'm ending the month with an episode with uh, Diamond Fight from Retronauts, and we're going to be talking about Silver Streak with Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder. Oh, that's actually one of the only one of those movies I haven't seen. And that's what everyone tells me, which is why I chose that movie, because it's the best one. It is... Oh, right on. It has Ray Walston. Ooh, uh, this murdering cops. So, okay. <laughs> all right. Yeah. So yeah, I recommend that. I got some other stuff planned, but I don't like to go too far in advance. But anyway, also you can find me on Twitter. I'm Lost Turntable on Twitter, and I do have a website still. It's LostTurntable.com, where I kind of write about obscure old music. But anyway, once more, Alex, thank you very much for coming down. I really appreciate it. Thank you and, so much for having me. And I'll see you all next week with a uh, discussion about Cloak and Dagger. Thank you. And coming up next is the spoiler section, so if you've seen the movie or you just want to be spoiled, stay tuned. All along, along, there were incidents and accidents, there were hints and allegations. If you'll be my bodyguard, I can be your long lost pal. I can call you Betty, and Betty, when you call me, you can call 
Yeah. But anyway, so yeah, the the road the road trip begins and it's it's their relationship is so strange. And like they're having this jolly old time drunk driving and suiting at chickens and then they pull over and have a really sad, depressing conversation about that relationship. <laughs> They're definitely messed up people, but like oh, yeah. in the in the beginning of the trip, like you can sort of see how they would be mixed up with one another. Mm-hmm. They're clearly both damaged people in, in various ways, and they're very down mm-hmm. on their luck. I don't necessarily think either one of them thinks the other is going to be the one to pull them out of it, but you know, they find a certain comfort in each other. Mm-hmm. And when they get to that picnic scene, which is where they they kind of go off the road and they're just, you know, they're sitting there by the tree and just kind of hanging out. And it, it, it kind of oscillates between just kind of a nice moment and a deeply sad moment. Like there's, you know, she's asking him, it's mm-hmm. like, why have you never asked me to marry you? And, and you know, he's kind of like, well, you know, if we figure this out, then, you know, maybe we'll make it happen. And there's, it's just like, there's a lot of like really interesting subtle character work going on in those scenes where like they're telling a lot without necessarily having to say much and yeah like it's it's all very well communicated oh yeah totally and that scene is mostly improv i guess when you listen to the commentary he's hiding his head in her so because he's embarrassed at point yeah like there's a part where the scene was supposed to end and then she asks him like you know so ask me again mm -hmm. ask me to marry you and he, mm-hmm. you can tell, you can actually kind of see him st- like start to break for a second and then be like, uh, you know, and just kind of, and then find his way back into the rhythm of the scene. But it's just like, yeah, I don't know. Like it, it, in those little moments, like I feel like they, they, they get a lot across. And that's like emotionally brutal. And then it's followed up by an even more brutal scene because then they pull over to camp for the night. And this is, again, things are going to get pretty intense here about what about some assault conversations. So if that yes. bothers you, just another warning. And I'm not going to make light of it. Don't worry. It's just, but it's a strange scene. It's very strange. So they pull over on the side of the road. The only thing I'll make light of is that it's fucking Chris Christopherson shows up. Yeah. Like, like him and his keyboard a, player just wander into the scene. Wander into the scene. And they kind of are creepy for a minute. And then they make it clear that they want to rape her. And... Benny's trying to fight it, and she's just said, no, I've been here before, you haven't. And they go off, and do you want to, like... So, like, the way I describe the scene is that she is trying to disarm... So Christopher Stopperson is the one who who wants to assault her. And she is, like, in a way, trying to disarm him. Mm -hmm. Like, I think, like, she slaps him at one point, and he slaps her back. But then they kind of go off to this other place, and... She's sort of like, it's it's hard to explain exactly what the dynamic there is, but I think the idea is that she's trying to, A, prevent him from going off on a violent, you know, on a violent yeah. tangent, and two, also not, not inspire him to want to harm or kill Benny. And that's what she's shooting for, and like, it's the most confusing scene in the movie, because it, it doesn't follow... Not to say that there is like a template for this kind of thing in films, but I, I mm-hmm. think they even said like during the commentary that the screenwriter was like, this is not how this scene was written at all on no, the page. No. The way it was written was very like it, he couldn't really remember. But the way he said it was like it was probably she walked off with him and then there was a scream somewhere in the distance, you know, like yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. And but this like they're going like it goes on really long and mm-hmm. but it never also never gets that far. Yeah, it, so- it's it's so strange. Yeah, and after he slaps her, he takes his gun out, and so I and walks away. 
And so I think that's the implication is like, okay, well, I'm going to kill these people. And she's trying to literally disarm him, I think. Yeah. And maybe, I don't know how to phrase this. I want to be careful. Uh, so, like, I think maybe she's also thinking this is going to happen. So I might as well try to make it as much on my terms as possible. Yeah, like again, sense. she's trying to she's yeah. trying to, to disarm the situation one yeah. that she feels like she can't get out of. Yeah. There's and if you've seen Straw Dogs, you bring that baggage with you to this movie. And yeah. there's a similar scene in Straw Dogs that I think is much more mis- misogynist than this. Yes. And with that in mind, I I I do think I, it's, it's even harder to kind of parse the what's really happening here. There's a similar scene in a film. Have you seen Charlie Varick with Walter Matthau? I haven't. That's a great movie, and Joe Don Baker's a a bad guy in that. And there's a scene where he—it's a very similar scene. He slaps this woman, and she figures out what's going to happen. So I, instead, she just kind of like makes it as you know nonviolent as possible. And right. it's it's a very dark idea, but it's it's yeah, it's hard to watch. I mean, it's, look, it's, rape rape in films, especially yeah. of this era, it was always treated with a degree of it it was either treated with a weird degree of frivolity or mm-hmm. it was treated as just a throwaway thing that happens to women in these kinds of movies, yeah, or it was treated as a way to so to show tits, yeah, it's a show tits yeah. and also just to say like this woman is in peril, yeah. and Getting a serious portrayal of it is is different, and even if it's a, it's a strange scene as this, yeah, and then like he, my my, yeah. I don't have an issue with it necessarily. It's very much just like it, considering the tone of everything else in the movie, mm-hmm. the way it approaches it feels completely alien from a yeah. lot of the other st- other violence in the film. And well, it yeah, and I don't know, like I I you know it it never it, like it. Like I said, it goes on for a weirdly long time, but yeah. like by the time Warren Oates finally gets around to just sort of like, you know, knocking the one dude out, walking up and shooting Chris Christopherson in the fucking chest, yeah. like it it doesn't feel like it has actually really advanced anywhere from where it yeah. started. It just kind of just keeps going. Well, I think I th- that's my my two views on the scene is one, it, it puts her in an even worse headspace for what happens later. Yeah. So she's less willing to go along with it. And Two, it's kind of like they're almost descending into hell. Like the 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 levels of of fucked up things that happen keep increasing. Yeah, and they're kind of crossing a point where they can't turn back because from there they go they go to the they go to the graveyard and the I love the bar they go to that has the urinal in the bar. Oh yeah, <laughs> the one that's just like right off to the side. You know, and I, I've been to some small Mexican, I've been to some small bars in Tokyo that are very close to that, and it's not comfortable. Yeah. You know, for anybody. And <laughs> so, but then when they go to, they, they, they arrive at this place and they arrive while there's a, a funeral for a baby. And you see them carrying the child's coffin. And when they when they first arrive to that small town, and yeah, it's it's like, yeah, you, why not make it more fucked up? Go for it, man. Yeah, go 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 ham on on making it the most depressing place possible. Then, and from that from from the rape on, this Elita looks dead. Like she just looks absolutely beyond destroyed. Well, and, so and there's there's one key bit in there that I think happens between those things, which is that like she knows that she, he wants to 
collect a bounty somehow on on Alfredo. Yeah. But she oh, doesn't what, yeah. really know what's involved yet. And I think it's during that car trip where he just explicitly says, I just need the head. And that is where I think she finally has her breaking point of like, oh God, like her realization of like what this is actually going to entail. And yeah, like between that and everything else going on there, like you can see it just like drain what little life was left out of her face. Yeah. And, and I also get the feeling that she still loves Alfredo Garcia too, a little bit. Yeah. I and think, I think so, she might actually love him more than she loves Benny. <laughs> yeah. Because someone like Alfredo, you don't, you never meet him, but you get, you know, he's a, he's a gigolo, but he, he's not a good guy. But when you're with him, it's fun. Yeah. You know, like I've, I've, I've met people like that. So, you know, I, I get why she would have those feelings, but that's, then they go to the graveyard. He starts to do the deed and then they're jumped. Yes. And the bad, they've been tailed by oh, two yeah. agents of the, I, th- I don't know if they were agents of the bounty hunters or if they were different bounty hunters, but yeah. Uh, the, yeah, there, there's, there's two Mexican guys that have been following them the whole way through. And then they get a hold of like, they, like you said, they jump him. And I love those dudes like before they do this. Cause it does seem like two idiots. Like I would love to watch their movie. Like, yes, if, there is definitely if, like a buddy comedy somewhere in those guys lives. <laughs> when they're trapped on the side of the road later, the ones to, I don't know why I'm fucking doing all the goddamn work. You're just sitting dead. It's Cause the other guy's like, drinking the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. But so when they do that, they knock. Betty over the head with the shovel, and they kill her. They, yeah. Oh, and when and I think they think this, they killed him. They th- yeah. He's he's he survives somehow, and he's reborn in the dirt. And this is the scene when making the film that Warren Oates was fucking high on mushrooms. Yes, he said explicitly, <laughs> "I like to get better in tune with the earth and nature." While he is doing this scene, the best <laughs> way to do this is to do some damn mushrooms. So they called some old lady who lived near where they were filming, and she had some like mushrooms that were like in a jar full of honey, and just said, "Here you go." And so, yeah, he was whacked out of his gourd. I I, I have no experience with hallucinogenics at all. Yeah, and I have friends who have and. Judging on, and those were harsher chemicals for sure, use Willie, but still, like, I don't know anybody who can, you know, do anything constructive while on hallucinogenics. I can't imagine acting. I mean, high functioning addicts, you know, That's can a good find point. a way. That's a good point. And, yeah, you know, it's yeah. like, again, Sam Peckinpah directed several movies while he was just sloshed out of his brain, you know, and yeah. it's obviously didn't do it the best job, but like somehow no. he still made high art. And yeah, totally. And, you know, in the case, I mean, depending on the strength of the mushrooms, like he could have been somewhere between a very pleasant and distracted high and just completely hallucinating. I think he's somewhere in the middle there, just based on his ability to remember lines. Um, But, you know, you can tell that there is like, like, it's not just that, you know, he's playing like he got hit in the head. Like there is something a little bit more visceral and mad about the performance (laughs) in those moments. Yeah, and it's just it took him two days to come down apparently. So those were probably some pretty damn good mushrooms then. Yeah, man. So yeah, the the only other scene I really want to talk about Mm -hmm. is the the shootout. Yes, because that's another one of my favorite scenes in the movie. Because when like he gets he 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 chases down the guys that took the head, he kills them. He keeps yes. going. By this point, he's talking to Alfredo. Like it's it's it's, it's a buddy. Comedy, the head is almost. literally sitting on the passenger seat with flies buzzing all around it, and he is talking yes. to it like it's his buddy. Yes, and then he gets stopped by the family, 
of Garcia, and they yes. want to head back. And then it's like a screwball comedy. And then the uh, Gig Young and uh, and his buddies show up, and the conversation of like, you know, trying to find out where the head is. Like they, it's like they're asking for directions. And the family has going? no idea who these guys are, so like they're it, trying to have this coded conversation about yes. like you know, oh yeah, no, it's here. Oh, uh, yeah. You're gonna have to go and get it. Yeah, no, the cutoff is here. The cutoff, yeah. the cutoff is here, but you'll have to take it. So then, they murder everyone except the old man, which is hilarious. Yes. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a line in the commentary where he was like, yeah. in any other movie, the old lady would be the sole survivor, but in Peck and Paw, it's just this one like cantankerous old guy with a beard who's just like, oh god, what have I done? And he's in a lot of Peck and Paw films too. He's in Wild Bunch and he's in Pack and with the Kid. Yeah, guy. Yeah. So and then then but they missed one. And so the one guy kills Sipensley. Yeah. No, no, he kills. No, he kills. He kills Gig Young. He kills yes, Gig he Young. Does. And that's when I think the full scope of their relationship becomes clear because it makes the other guy just go completely insane. Yeah, like and, the guy was ready to pull a gun on Benny too, and like Benny gets the drop on him. Yeah. And as he as he's taken the first bullet and is starting to like realize, oh shit, I've been mortally wounded. He starts walking over to his buddy. He says his name. And yeah, yes, it is. There is a tenderness to that that is not evidenced in those characters anywhere prior to this, really. Yeah, he it, it, the the way he reacts to his death is the way you would see a guy react to a woman, uh, uh, his his wife's death in a yeah. in like a sappy romantic movie from the fifties. Like there, there's something going on there. There's and a yeah. partnership there that goes beyond killing people. Yeah, yeah, totally. And we don't have to go much more into that afterwards. I mean, like the ending is what happens and you know, people can see it for themselves, but the ending, the ending does end rather suddenly because that is what Peck and Potus left for. Yeah, like, it does end suddenly, but it also ends. I think the only way that movie should. Yeah. But I, I wish, I think, I think the shots they couldn't get a little more of like Oates, body. Right. Like you don't, I, I imagine that was like maybe him falling out of the car or something. They couldn't get that. Well, you know, so I, I think I th- just for the purposes of this, I, th- I think it's worth just stating exactly what happens. And so okay, this, is, the, this yeah. is your 1000 percent spoiler warning that we are going to yes. say it. So, you know, like he gets <laughs> he brings, he you know, the, the, after the, the shootout, he brings the head. He brings it first to the hotel and then mm-hmm. ends up shooting all those guys, too, which yeah. to find out who actually because they were only going to pay him ten thousand dollars. Yeah, the head's worth a, the head's worth a million. Yeah, so he ends up killing everybody, and <laughs> yes. finds out who El Jefe is. Flies the head down there, assumingly bought it a seat or got it in, in somewhere in baggage claim. Brings it to <laughs> yeah. El Jefe, and I, yeah, I was like, do you check that or like? <laughs> I know exactly. Like, is that is it like medical waste? Like, how do you how do you build that? Um, but so he goes to the hacienda. You know, he shows up with the head, and El Jefe is just very casually like, "Here's your money. I don't care what you do with the head at this point. Do whatever you want." And you can kind of see the, the the casualness with which he delivers that line is the thing that breaks him. He's just yeah, like, "Yeah, sixteen people, which he he's kept count. Sixteen people have died for this, and fuck you." It's kind of like the end of Escape from New York. Totally. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's like if if you would have given me some regard, maybe we would have would have ended differently. But the way you're treating me, it's like not. So instead, he shoots a bunch of health Hefe's dudes. He shoots El Hefe uh, to the delight of his teenage daughter. That's great. Kill him. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, runs off, scurries off with the money. And mm-hmm. 
one of my all-time favorite things in movies is when a person dies in a full-on hail of machine gun fire. Like, Training Day is a movie that, you know, I think has has aged somewhat poorly in a lot of ways (laughs) outside of Denzel Washington's performance. But my God, the part where they shoot the shit out of him in that movie is one of the all-time great guy getting riddled with bullet scenes you will ever see in a movie and this one is not as good but it's way up there like it is a great car getting pelted with tons of machine gun fire man dying horribly great scene someone should do a super cut of those scenes to like bon jovi's blaze of glory or something yes yeah you ever seen ever seen the gauntlet yes okay yeah there you go so (laughs) yes that's another good one yeah, another good one. But yeah, it's just it's a brutal ending to a brutal movie. The last shot is a bit the barrel of a gun. Yep. And the end, fuck you. It's the seventies, we're all miserable. Like it's just I guess the original ending was that he got away. He didn't take the money and he got away. And Yeah, and I it's think- conflicting there's conflicting stories. Some people say they filmed that, some say they didn't. I can't yeah. believe they would have filmed that. I, yeah. I have to imagine they didn't film it, but like yeah. I, I, I don't think this movie ends right any other way than this one. Yeah, he has to die. He's a bastard. Yeah, like he's the protagonist. Not he's not a hero. He's a bastard that has finally realized the scope of his bastardness by yeah. the end of it. But and but that doesn't mean he gets to escape it. It just means that he gets to finally understand the nature of his being. Yeah, and it's. He, he, yeah, he just has to die, though. It's like yeah. it's like they couldn't have a. There's there's no version of the Wild Bunch where somehow Ernest Borgnine makes it out. Like, it's just, oh, but uh, you want it, you want it so bad. But no, you want no. him. You want him and the Gorch brothers, man, just to yeah, just to keep on going. But no.